The Scandal of Financial Nihilism. A quote from Boethius from his On the Consolation of Philosophy. It is because you don't know the end and purpose of things that you think the wicked and the criminal have power and happiness. Nobody has a precise idea how much wealth anyone else has. There's a good chance you don't even know your own. We're all engaged in an elaborate game of assumptions, even about our own future. The fact that men are posting gain and loss porn on Reddit is not a sign of transparency, but opacity. The narratives only go skin deep. Beneath the narratives, people are silently crying out for some kind of order, a link between cause and effect, or some indication that hard work still matters, or the assurance that they'll be rewarded for good decisions and not for reckless ones. When you make a lot of money or lose a lot of money very quickly, without the ability to see exactly why and how the windfall or the bust happened, it can lead to financial nihilism. When you see, or think you see, other people doing the same, that can lead to financial nihilism. When you work real hard and do all of the right things, like Dave Ramsey or some other financial guru would have you do, and then you proceed to lose most of your net worth in the course of a month due to completely unexpected circumstances, that can lead to financial nihilism. Now, there are a few different ways of defining this particular form of nihilism that I'm calling financial nihilism. Each of them points to some different aspect of this, this phenomenon. My friend Dimitri Kofinas has referred to financial nihilism as, quote, a philosophy that treats the objects of speculation as though they were intrinsically worthless. So it's a philosophy that fully embraces the view that reality is completely subjective. Now, I should note that the subjective theory of value in economics, well known in Austrian economics, does not in any way imply that reality itself is subjective, but rather that subjects people determine the value of an object and ultimately its price through their collective decisions. So while it's called the subjective theory of value, it doesn't mean that reality itself is subjective. Now, each of these actors in this subjective theory could be acting with a greater or less vision of an adherence to reality itself. But for the financial nihilist, the subjective completely subsumes the objective. The truth is that both exist, the objective and the subjective. For example, beauty, at least the way that it was classically understood, is something objective. It has certain characteristics. The scholastics, particularly Thomas Aquinas, would have said that something beautiful has three characteristics, such as claritas, clarity, consonancia, proportion, and integritas, integrity or coherence. But even if something is objectively beautiful because it has those three characteristics, I still perceive it subjectively. Now, conflating the two things, saying it's either one or the other, always leads to problems. So everything is not subjective. 
And I think this is the important point that Dimitri is hitting on when he says that it's a philosophy that treats the objects of speculation as though they were completely intrinsically worthless, as if reality itself is completely subjective. Now, financial nihilism, in my view, is almost always downstream from ontological nihilism. I don't think people are nihilistic in a domain-specific sense. I think nihilism is diffusive and easily bleeds over into all aspects of life, from your relationships to your health. For instance, you hear about a friend who takes extremely good care of himself, but is nevertheless unexpectedly diagnosed with cancer. And so you think, screw it. What's the use of all of this discipline, of this diet, of this effort that I'm putting in? We have entered what seems to me like a truly nihilistic age, and that's also reflected in our politics, just as much, if not more, than our markets. It's almost as if it doesn't actually matter what people say or do anymore. Big pieces of news won't even move the market, for instance. The spirit of nihilism, I think, is captured in politics pretty well and summed up when Donald Trump said, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible, end quote. Yeah, it is incredible. And that's why politics is no longer credible. Nihilism, like all of life, ultimately comes down to the fundamental question of belief. What do you believe in? What do people believe in? People don't know who they can trust or who they can believe in at this point, but they must believe in something. Now, number three, there seems to be a time-bound aspect to financial nihilism. If in one second you can lose or make a lot of money in a manner that feels completely detached from any amount of value that you think you created, then you begin to get the sense that the quality of your work has no connection to what people will pay for it, or to your financial success. Not even your intelligence can save you. You can analyze a stock for six months straight, like one hedge fund manager of a long-only hedge fund told me recently, and buy it with the complete conviction that it's undervalued, having done the work, and then watch it as it loses 80% of its value in the course of a single year. If the bears are making money based purely on mimesis and momentum, well, then what's the use of pouring yourself out doing analysis for 40-plus hours or for six months? Eventually, you come to a place where you simply start to wait second by second to see if anything changes. Having lost a firm belief in your own agency, your own ability to affect change, you place bets, you wait, you see what happens. Nothing matters, then what good is there in being good? Abandonment to non-divine providence is the only thing left. Number four, if we're unable to transcend the transactional, to exit the logic of the game, the gamification of the stock market, the NFT swindles, the latest crypto narrative, you can't exit the logic of the game. You simply enter deeply into it for fear of being left out or left behind. The small amount of nihilism that led to your decision to play in the first place breeds even more nihilism once you're deep inside the game. Now, in the moment, you, you may feel that you truly believe in the game while you're playing it, but you don't really. You can't even be an honest nihilist because you've had to make friends with dishonest wealth. Lastly, 
Number five, a financial nihilist could be described as someone who simply has no skin in the game, as Nassim Nicholas Taleb might say. Now, no doubt we could list more things, and there are many more ways to describe financial nihilism, but I'll leave it at that for now. But financial nihilism, to move on, I think comes down to an even more fundamental problem, and that's an epistemic problem, a problem of epistemology. Many people simply see nothing worth believing in, and so they are, in the words of Neil Postman, amusing themselves to death. Unfortunately, I think it's even darker than that. Financial nihilism very often stems from a basic, unacknowledged belief that life is simply not worth living. If we're bankrupt a few years from now, who cares? We don't want to be here in the first place. If a person lacks the will to live and engage deeply with the world, what is there to fear about financial loss? The pain of loss may in fact be the only way they have left to feel anything at all. Nihilism lies at the heart of many of our societal problems, health problems, political problems, and relationship problems. When there's no hope for the future, why do we expect people to care about decisions that affect the future? For lack of vision, people perish. Lastly, I think we lack a rich understanding of the difference between wealth and money. Wealth, as Paul Graham has written, is what we want, simply what we want. Food, clothes, a home, the ability to travel and learn about the world, and so forth. Money is simply a system we've devised for helping us get the things that we want or think we want in a specialized world. We need money to trade. We need money to have objects change hands. Obviously, though, we want much more than food, clothes, houses, cars, and things. We want loving relationships and lives filled with beauty, nourishing conversations, and many more immaterial things that we're used to saying we can't, quote, put a price on. Well, of course we can't put a price on these things. Put a price on anything. How much would you pay right now to be magically transported to a table with a wonderful meal, with a handful of wise, kind people who are interested in you and want to engage with you in conversation about all the topics that are most important to you. I don't know about you, but I'd pay a pretty good price for that. Now, I can't buy that. Nobody can. I have to say, some extraordinarily rich people do attempt to buy these kinds of experiences and relationships, but those purchases are dangerous because they carry one huge caveat. Genuine, loving care and attention is not something that anyone can buy. There are many extremely rich people who go their entire lives wondering if anyone is really their friend, really their friend. Someone who's truly interested in them for who they are, rather than their money. I can't even imagine that kind of existential loneliness on account of money. What I can do, though, is invest in things that I feel matter and resist the temptation to invest in things that I don't think matter merely so that I'm part of the game, so that I feel like I'm not missing out. I refuse to play. 
that is one freedom that each of us has. We get to choose whether or not we play. Now, financial nihilists of the speculative variety aren't necessarily greedy people who seek money at all costs. They're people who just cease to believe that money means anything, and so it ends up meaning everything. The financial nihilists actually have something right. Money doesn't matter as much as most people think it does. Their downfall is just their inability to believe that a greater reality exists for which money is simply part of. It's just one layer of a greater reality. The economic layer is an important layer, no doubt, but it is not layer zero, ground zero of life or reality. If money isn't ordered to anything else, then it becomes ordered simply to itself, to its own propagation and self-replication. And that is precisely the definition of a meme. And that's why we have a meme market and a meme economy. A short story to conclude. When I was a kid, I begged my parents for a Nintendo Entertainment System, an NES, for well over two years before they finally gave in. Well, my dad is the one who really gave in. All of my friends had a Nintendo at this point, and my mimetic desire was clearly raging. So one day I sat down and made a list of 100 reasons why I should have a Nintendo. This is a pretty miraculous accomplishment when I actually think about it. I wish it was still around. I wish that list was still around somewhere because it would be pretty hilarious to read and I would have gladly posted it or read it to you all here if I could have found it, but I think it's long gone. I don't think my parents saved it anywhere. Now, I don't remember a single item on that list, but I know that I came up with a hundred reasons. and I'm sure some of them were pretty noble. I know, I think I remember pledging to buy learning games that would help develop my brain, things like that. But many of my reasons were probably pretty suspect, to say the least. My dad took one look at this list and decided that he'd had enough. Now, it wasn't the list that had convinced him that I should have a Nintendo. I can't imagine it was all that persuasive at all. It was just the fact that I'd actually taken the time to make that damn list. He just couldn't take it anymore. I think he thought that his kid, his only son, his only child, had finally gone totally crazy told me to get in the car and drove me to the nearest Best Buy where he bought me a Nintendo Entertainment System and he told me to pick out three games. Man, I would have been more than happy with just one, but he didn't know any better. When he got home, he got in a little spat with my mom who couldn't believe that he had succumbed to me. I started feeling kind of bad. Had I manipulated my father into buying this toy for me? My dad was a truck driver. He worked his ass off for every penny he ever made. He had no idea what a Nintendo or a video game even was. After seeing my mom's concern, my own distress, my dad turned to me and said, Son, it's only money. He smiled, sat down, cracked open a beer, and started watching a Detroit Tigers game. I've never forgotten that. My dad wasn't a financial nihilist. My dad, perhaps more than anybody I've ever known, knew what money is. It was something real to him because it led to or made possible real things for his family. The life that he was carving out 
for me, for himself, for my mom, for his friends. My dad had perspective and he had an order to it, to the way he saw money. He could say it's only money without a hint of that nonchalant cynicism of the man who blows his Bitcoin windfall on a new car that he doesn't need. My dad said it's only money because he secretly knew that he was wealthy.